Wow. Are we going to have Stacy back? Yes, we are. Hey there, pal. Hey there, friends. Listen, Stacy's back soon. This is the last in our short series of little podcasts where I am going to be retracting things that I have written. And this is probably the most, probably the most significant one, of course, uh, because this one is a you know, kind of a full book project. I will not be doing others. I'm still recording this, by the way, outside of my home in Portland. And uh, there'll be ambient sounds. I kind of like it. It gives me a certain kind of comfort to know that I'm in a real place, not in a sound studio. But ultimately, uh, I will not be doing any retractions of my work as an associate editor of the Encyclopedia of Martin Luther and the Reformation. I feel really great about all the work I did there and uh, any of uh, the, you know, kind of the, some of the other work that I might have been doing um, that is more of like, you know, book review or just kind of scholarly and not really uh, related to any kind of take or opinion on it. Today, I am going to be talking about my book, Sexy, The Quest for Erotic Virtue in Perplexing Times. I'm partly going to take some things back. There are certainly things in this case that, unlike a couple of the last shows, I'm not just saying I would have said it differently, but I actually think differently about it now. Um, But also, I am going to explain a little bit more about what I was trying to do, and surprise, surprise, even back when this was written in 2016, uh, well, written before that, but I think it came out in 2016, uh, well, I have uh, kind of some backstory to kind of help you understand what it was that I was trying to do, where I was going to go with it, and to give you a little context, but most importantly, what am I thinking these days now that I have ghosted church and disassociated myself from uh, fundamentalist forms of Christianity? What do I think now about this quest for erotic virtue in our perplexing times? That's what's in store for you, friends. Thanks for sticking around. Thanks for being here. So glad you are. Let's go. Right. I still stand by, by the way, just so you know. I stand by the title. I kind of like it. Maybe a little too cute. My fatal flaw, uh, or at least my Achilles heel, my uh, hubris, uh, or maybe my self-indulgence all relates to this idea that I like to... Um, <laughs> there's Bimby again barking at our friends on cool skateboards. Anyway, um, so, you know, again, this is one of those titles that... Uh, is is kind of that um, that that attempt at being clever and interesting with the title. At the same time, I do stand by it because, um, precisely because a lot of people found it um, uncomfortable. Specifically, folks who were in religious settings. Not even so much that they found it uninteresting or distasteful in the abstract, but more importantly. They had a difficult time as uh, church workers, pastors, youth pastors, whatever, having this book on their shelf or reading it on the plane, that sort of thing. Um, uh, but nonetheless, I stand by that. And I also loved the the cover. Char Gladden, graphic designer, uh, made me a really cool cover. And it is this kind of combination of a fertilized salmon egg and uh, a kiss and a sunset 
in the blood orange tone, and uh, an Enzo, a, a, a Taoist, Buddhist, uh, Zen Buddhist kind of circle, and also an anus. You know, uh, all of those things were actually part of the conversation that I had with Char Gladden, uh, and I will uh, link to her in the uh, show notes. I really loved the work she did on that cover. And in a certain sense, the art of that cover is partly what I was after, and it has to do with the opposite of what the, uh, what the medieval theologians called the cardinal sin of sloth. And that is this idea that um, sloth is not laziness, uh, pure and simple. It's a kind of despondency or lack of energy to exist and to move forward because there isn't that drive for life and hope. Uh, that was kind of behind it. So you think about the salmon egg, that was a really important piece of it. The salmon egg is is this is this goal for the mommy and daddy salmon, uh, which, by the way, is something my family checked out uh, this very weekend on the Olympic Peninsula, visited some friends, and uh, there are people that count the slowly dying bodies of recently spawned salmon parents that then drift down the river. And uh, by the way, if you listen to the beautiful, beautiful work of Radiolab, a podcast that doesn't have cars and dogs in the background as often, um, but uh, I will link to this episode that I used with uh, our, uh, our middle school students this last uh, week, and it is called uh, Tree to Shining Tree, and I won't spoil it all for you. It is so delightful. It's all about magic in the natural world, and it's a story of the ways in which the mycelium of mushrooms connect the forest to the decaying fish, essentially. So you have a fish that was either eaten by a bear uh, and and some of its parts are left in the soil to decay, or uh, it just dies and washes up onto the shore and is covered by mud. The mycelium of a uh, a mushroom go out and reach into... The, the, the corpse, essentially, of this uh, salmon, and it pulls that nutritional value into the root network, and it exchanges it into the new root network for the tree's benefit. So, um, but I'll let you get into all the, the nuts and bolts of that one. That was a lot of fun. But ultimately, what we find is it's not just that the bear needs the salmon, and it's not just that the angler wants the sporting joy of capturing the salmon, and, and not just that the human beings need these fisheries. It's also that the, the forest itself requires these fish. But what keeps it all going? What keeps life going? This thing that we'll call sexiness. It's the it's the drive for life rather than giving up. It's hope uh, versus despair. That's a key piece to it. Uh, but it's also a certain kind of hope in love itself. And uh, to kind of set the stage, my big you know, kind of premise for the book was this idea that, um, that if you look at, just say in my case, higher education, and you looked at it from the perspective of a secular academy versus the perspective of, say, Christian universities, I started to notice that in both cases, when we deal with questions like uh, even consent, which is a very important thing to teach, uh, consent um, or um, what the evangelicals were calling purity, they were always dealing with 
things in a very clinical way. Here's what you're allowed to do. Here's what you're not, not allowed to do. It was very much these kind of concrete behaviors that people were wondering, can I do this or not do this? And I found um, none of that sexy because uh, what I wanted to do was to bring this concept of virtue ethics into play. Virtue ethics being not so much about the rules, uh, and the rules would be maybe associated with divine command theory in a more traditionalist uh, religious sense, or in a modern sense, following the philosopher Immanuel Kant, it would be related to essentially duties and rules that are, are universal and inviolable, inviolable um, that is never do this, always do this, that sort of thing, uh, universalized principles and rules, there's that approach, or there's the consequentialist approach that's only looking at whether or not something's good or bad based on the results and the outcomes of that action. And these are important, helpful considerations for any ethical human being, but I thought it was very important for us to consider, um, not only in human culture today, in the 21st century, but in the first century, when the New Testament documents were written, the Christian scriptures were, were compiled, um, and, then the, and then the early Christian community developed a certain kind of sexual ethic, what I was trying to do was explain the heart or maybe what uh, St. Augustine would have called the spirit of the law rather than the law itself. In other words, what I was trying to do is figure out what, what are the virtues that underlie a Christian sexual ethic? And how can that help us to get past this problem? And the problem was that people didn't just see Christian sexual ethics as restrictive or uptight or problematic. They just saw it as unworkable, right? Like it was, it was something that was made clear to me as I was talking with college students they said, it doesn't make sense to me when these church people talk about premarital sex here at this Christian college because I don't ever pl plan on getting married. So premarital sex is like three layers deep in terms of problematic because they just, they don't have a concept of uh, really wanting to get married. And this would be Christian students. This would be uh, atheist students, whatever. Muslim students. They just like, they saw so many people have such miserable relationships. Not only that, they saw so many people whose marriages were precisely the worst part of their existence. That they either wanted something to happen to their spouse or they didn't want to live or they just would do anything if they could just get out of this, but they couldn't extract themselves from their, these relationships. And so these young people were thinking, why, why on earth would I want to get locked into something that is so hell uh, hell-like, like hell, right? And uh, even if it means I remain celibate my whole life, I would rather do that than get involved in, in this contract that is a kind of uh, patriarchal contract. Um, and in the case of conservative Christians, one that also demands that the woman be subservient to the husband and that the primary duty is to breed. And, uh, and to, in some cases, increasingly in my, my circles, um, increasingly to have as many kids as possible and to deny uh, birth control, which in the book I stand by 
rightly, uh, you know, drawing from that scene in the movie Monty Python, um, in Monty Python, The Meaning of Life, where there is a Protestant couple and they're discussing why Martin Luther may not have realized it, but one of his great contributions is allowing um, people to get condoms at the local store and not being embarrassed by it. Whereas the Catholics, having this very restrictive sexual ethic, thought, no, you have to, you know, you have to, um, you have to have as many babies as possible. Maybe you know the line, every sperm is sacred. Um, if you know that song, it's a pretty funny one. In any case, I found that there was a lack of concern for the romantic joy of young people, especially across the board. It reminds me a little bit of the poem that I recently discussed with middle schoolers today, uh, The Wasteland. And there is a part of The Wasteland where you kind of get this idea that um, the narrator and a female character or a female character and somebody he's observing are in this modernistic sexual encounter that is promiscuous but and free free of traditional values but in the wasteland yes we've we've let go of some of the old sexual mores which uh, I would argue and many people would argue is a good thing but um, but but does that mean that giving up on the beauty of love is the answer and I think not. In other words, a kind of modernistic, disconnected, uh, materialistic promiscuity is a very different thing from the mutuality of hunter-gatherer society with both promiscuity and arguably, um, you know, a, pr a prevalence of, of polyamory, perhaps. Um, that is not just having multiple partners, but having multiple loving relationships. So it was always in the back of my mind that I was going to then follow up the book Sexy with a discussion of sexual minorities uh, and Christianity and uh, LGBT people within Christianity, but also the question of marriage itself what it really means, what the role of the state is, and all of this. We've discussed it on a previous show, that is Stacy and I, um, and that is uh, where we were discussing what we would do if we were to have the energy to write a book about, uh, or the second volume of Sexy, we were going to call it Kinky, intentionally uh, referring to two things. One, and this is very important regarding what I think sexy was supposed to be about. And I, I really don't think I pulled it off perfectly, certainly not well enough, because I was too afraid looking over my shoulder at the religious people who I knew were going to already have a problem with what I said. But kinky in sense, um, that I didn't want to kink shame. I wanted to find a way to talk about Christian sexual ethics in a way that was sex positive, if it were possible at all. I think probably is, but certainly not in the context in which I was. And uh, But secondly, the idea that in Sexy, I'm kind of making the case for, or at least explaining a kind of rationale in which monogamy makes sense. Monogamy 
making sense uh, as a kind of kink, right? Like by choosing in a romantic relationship to be committed only to one another, but not doing this because of the demands of the state or church authorities, but rather just because that's something you wanted to commit to each other is totally cool and kind of fun. And uh, as long as you don't uh, take it in such a way that you then end up using it as a way to hurt or exploit or suck the life out of your partner, monogamy is groovy. As, by the way, George Michael said, eh, not so sure I bought it, back when he did his, his uh, song, I Want Your Sex, <laughs> where he was trying really hard, I think, to demonstrate his heterosexuality. Um, and stay in the closet maybe for, I, I, I don't know all the reasons why. But uh, anyway, the, the, the idea is that sex is uh, natural and fun, but it's also perfectly fun uh, to be monogamous if that helps you feel safe in a committed, unconditional, uh, loving relationship. And I, I guess the other part there was this idea that... For a lot of us in this lonely, lonely world where we don't live in a hunter-gatherer society with the assurance of a loving community, a supportive community, there's something really nice about the idea that when I get uh, depression or senility and dementia in my older years, that there's somebody who's committed to being there with me even when I'm not as good-looking or uh, not as together or, or whatever. It's through thick and thin. There's something really, really cool about that. So again, I wanted to start with that. I wanted to push the boundaries within that for the Christian community itself. And then if I could get people along far enough with that, and there have been many, many people who've reached out and, and found it to be a very helpful book within that context of conservative Christianity. If I could help people abandon purity culture knowing that they didn't have to abandon ethics, full stop, right? Like that's what people think. Oh, well, if we get rid of Christian sexual ethics, then we're just going to get rid of ethics. Turns out, no. Turns out that in my experience, one of the things that I found really weird, having ghosted church and having left church-related higher education... I promise you this, my, at least in my current contexts, I am finding it strange, surprisingly um, far more safe for young people, far safer for young people um, in palpable ways that I never expected. That is, when I'm dealing with church workers, even when I think that everybody's on the up and up, that they're not molesty, they're not, um, they're not coercive in a direct way, there's something of a kind of weird, creepy tension that I experienced all throughout my existence within the evangelical world that all of a sudden just went away. It's this kind of weird thing where, you know, so many people stay within Christianity because they say, well, if we don't believe in God and specifically the, the God of the Christian Bible, then we're going to have bedlam. We're going to have an immoral society. Those of you who are still in the church, I guarantee you this is not necessarily true, but it is definitely my experience. My experience is that when I left the church, I all of a sudden found myself amongst far more ethical people.
And I don't just mean ethical because they're they're living according to some, you know, kind of sec- secular morality. Just people that cared about their own values and principles and wanted to live according to it. And uh, people who didn't need some kind of external set of rules to behave, but actually they behaved because they understood the questions and they responded to them with their own moral agency. This was a hypothesis I had, you know, within the heavily embedded church-related world. And uh, it is, I just can guarantee you, at least in my experience, totally played out that people who have to navigate their own ethics and including uh, sexual ethics have uh, at least an internal consistency and concept of integrity that I just did not find very often within the um, hyper-church world. In any case, again, I wanted to take people down this path of understanding the principles of Christian sexual ethics and then apply those virtues to their current lives without applying the exact manifestation or um, a set of guidelines from the first century. It's, just a, it's a different world. Here's a great um, case in point, what I talk about with respect to divorce. And I think it kind of illustrates the whole, the whole point of it. So in the Bible, in, um, specifically in the Gospels, Jesus condemns the Pharisees for being too liberal with respect to divorce. Jesus... We, you know, we think of the, the, the Pharisees as being kind of uptight, and they were in some ways. But partly what they were trying to do was uh, come up with an ethic that they could actually follow. Uh, but it was an ethic that allowed them to get away with as much as they can get away with. And in one, one of those areas, uh, they were arguing for a kind of um, convenient divorce uh, procedure, protocol. And Jesus said, no, God hates divorce. He was, seems to be very clearly against the permiss- permissiveness uh, regarding divorce. And yet what I noticed in the book was that growing up, if you had been somebody who in high school and college had had uh, 3,000 sexual partners or something, um, we'll call that a testimony. We would, we would trot you out. And you can talk about how much that was not fulfilling or something. And we're very fine with that. But if you just had been married one time and then you got divorced, you were continually living sin in sin. And uh, even if you were now in a committed monogamous relationship, uh, you went to church with your new spouse, uh, getting divorced and remarried was a perpetual uh, adultery, uh, irretrievable adultery. And if you can just get your head around that one question, I think you can understand what I was trying to do uh, with sexy. I was trying to set people free from a very unhelpful sexual ethic. It was a conversation within the church, within the Christian world, but one that many people in America recognize, right? This, this stigma against divorced people. And what I wanted to say was, look, you don't have to believe in God to understand that in the first century, Jesus was right. Divorce was cruel. If you divorced some woman, because it was always the dude divorcing the woman, if a man divorces a woman in the first century, you're abandoning her because she's not 
good looking enough anymore. She doesn't please you the way you want to be pleased. You just have moved on to somebody else. You abandon her to a life of poverty, which may lead to prostitution, and it may lead to begging, or it may lead to destitution and starvation. So in that first century context, what decent person in his or her right mind uh, would ever say that divorce is acceptable? Only bad people. Only bad people who, at least in the case of the Pharisees that Jesus knew, wanted to use the law to actually create a path for them to do what they wanted to do, the naughty things they wanted to do, that were legal, lawful, and yet immoral. All right? So you get this? If you can get that piece of it, if you can understand how in the context of the first century, divorce would be bad, and yet today, forcing people as a a fundamentalist Christian, especially women, to stay in an abusive relationship because Jesus says don't get divorced, that is a misfiring. That is, you know, catastrophe. Now, I will say, I'll just give you a little hint on this. Um, I don't, I don't think I am convinced anymore that the concept of marriage as a shackle between two people, whether it's community-based or legal or some kind of religious thing that cannot be severed, I don't think that's a good idea, I don't think, anymore. And I mean this from the perspective of even radical Christians in the 16th century who thought, hey, this whole idea of of vows and uh, marriage as a legal construct is spiritually and ethically problematic in itself. And they, they say this from the perspective of Jesus saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no. When you get married and you, you, you share your quote-unquote vows, what you're doing is you are essentially promising something that you really can't promise because you're, you're saying, like, I will never change my mind about who I am and what my values are. Um, and um, uh, I promise that I'm going to do this or that, but... Um, one of those promises, you know, in the old days was I'm going to honor and obey as a woman. Well, what if you change your mind and you say, I no longer have that patriarchal worldview. So the Anabaptists, a.k.a. radical reformers uh, of the 16th and following centuries, sometimes would say um, that you should have some kind of sexual modesty or something. I mean, they all they all had different takes and sometimes they they could believe in free love you know there are those groups but generally speaking the the main point is let your yes be yes and your no be no has to do with the question do you love me are you committed to me now that's the only real question that actually matters everything else is well you said you would and that kind of resentment and expectation seems to me has has caused a lot of people stress but that's something that's kind of like a embryonic um, concept that Stacy and I are, are kind of talking about these days uh, as far as like what what went wrong and uh, with with the kind of Western ideas of marriage and monogamy. But in any case, the uh, the the flip side is that what Stacy rightly came up with as a, a center point, if we were ever to have, delved into this idea of a second book called Kinky, 
uh, the idea is that the fundamental principle there is the only good sex is with equals. I'll say it again. The only good sex is with equals. That is, if you live in this church world of hierarchy and domination, we intuitively recognize that the sexual experience for the dominating person, even if they get off on control outside of a, you know, kind of a BDSM arrangement that is, is more explicit, but if they're just like, hey, I'm, I'm the dad that is in charge of everything, I'm the husband who's over the wife, there's a certain sense in which that's unfulfilling, we, we intuit, because that dude's got to be suspecting that the person that he's having sex with isn't really um, reciprocating in, a, uh, in an emotional sense. So that for that dude, the egalitarianism is just better sex. And likewise, um, then if you want to s- spin out onto any aspect of sexuality any expression, gender-wise, orientation-wise, kink-wise, if you're operating from consent and equality, then you have a generally positive experience. And if you're operating from a perspective of hierarchy and domination in in the way that the conservative Christians are operating, it's just bad sex. And so Stacey and I were trying to argue, hey, don't just... Don't just follow our lead in terms of understanding uh, sexual ethics because it is woke or right. Do it because you're going to enjoy it more. And I, I still stand by that, honestly believe it. It's not something that was in the book. It was something that we were doing in a, uh, in, in a recent episode that I will link to on protectyourdogkin.org in the show notes. So to summarize kind of the, the big picture, um, there are, there's still value to some extent in the book. Uh, especially for Christians. if I don't know if anybody would, would trust me in that because some of the thinking that I started there kind of s- kept spinning in this other direction. But if you want to understand the best possible case for a Christian sexual ethic that takes the Bible as authoritative and operates within the history of Western and, in, in many cases, Eastern Christianity, it's a good book for you. Again, I worry that people knowing that I'm apostate in so many ways now from the perspective of what I would say is a contrived orthodoxy. But uh, from that perspective, if you want a Christian book on sex and marriage uh, that's kind of open-minded but limited within an evangelical world, yeah, that's a book you could use, but it's pretty obvious that if you follow those lines of thinking to where I think they would go, ultimately you're going to end up where I am now, which isn't where you started. And so I understand that people might want not want to do it. But certainly, if you want to follow the thought process, uh, you can check that out. Uh, but I should say that we are taking it out of print. Um, I think um, I'm going to get from the publisher. Uh, they kindly uh, are going to send over to me some copies. But it's pretty clear that no longer um, I nor the publisher, 1517, uh, New Reformation Press really are as good of a fit. And so, um, not that I don't uh, love a lot of folks over there. We don't have a good relationship. It's just that um, we're just in different places. And so, them carrying my title and me having that out there as a, as a book in print, it's just not consistent with either of us. However, um, I am going to try to obtain some of those. And so, if it's something that, for curiosity's sake, you, you, you want to check out, certainly, I think, will still be available probably on Kindle. I'm not sure. I, I'm sure it will. Um, 
at some point I thought maybe it'd be a good idea to do some uh, revision or preface or something. I, I think it's just better to start in a, in a whole new place in many ways, but, um, but I'll, I'll have some copies on hand at some point and, uh, to stay, stay apprised of that. You might want to check out the, uh, protectyournoggin.org website, uh, for any updates and, and follow us on Twitter etc. Instagram, especially uh, Instagram at Dow Surfers with a T T A O Surfers at Dow Surfers. Okay, so out of print. Still, by the way, there's some good autobiographical stuff. If you want to see pictures of the family, that's a that's a book for you. Um, and if you want to just kind of see a snippet of the way I was operating as I was teaching classes my uh, Christians and ethics classes back in the day, that's what I was doing. And largely because I discussed the evolution of the penis uh, in, the, uh, in the book Sex at Dawn and, and other uh, research, um, those, those lectures themselves got me in a, in a little bit of trouble back in the day. And if I'm uh, mentioning the penis, I might as well mention it this way. I, I thought it was interesting that so many uh, Christians say something silly like, you know, well, this is the, the cheap version. Uh, God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Therefore, um, non-heterosexual uh, relationships are abominations. But I suggest to the students, and I hopefully got enough of it into the book, um, that, well, if you go by that reasoning, then if I could find evidence that our ancestors were programmed uh, in some way to be promiscuous, uh, as, as, the, as the book Sex at Dawn argues, then surely natural law, using Thomas Aquinas, would say to us, well, then therefore we should be promiscuous. Uh, Thomas Aquinas makes this case, you know, uh, animals don't have sex for fun. They have sex for procreation. Therefore, sex, sex should only be for procreation. But he never had been able to observe, nor did he know anyone that observed uh, the, the behavioral patterns of bonobo chimps, right? Who have sex as a way of, of bonding the community together. He never met birds that were gay. I've met cows that were gay. I've met many, many animals <laughs> that were gay. They're gay birds. You, you have all sorts of reasons to understand or, or, or discuss why that would happen. But the point is, I thought it was a very bad line of reasoning because in many ways, if you think about other spiritual traditions, kind of like, say, Buddhism, one way to conceive of Buddhism is the idea that we are trying to spiritually overcome our evolution, our programming. And if you want, you could believe in young earth creationism and say, we're going to overcome our sin nature or something. Um, I don't want to go down that line of, uh, of thinking uh, because I think it's um, untenable, but, but it certainly would still work. And the idea is um, if, if it turns out, and as it does, that you have a lower rate of testicular cancer if you masturbate and have uh, lots of sex, then wouldn't that be evidence from a, from a Thomistic Catholic perspective that you should have sex not for procreation? You know, and of course it was the Catholics that, that gave the West this odd idea that sex outside of procreation itself is an abomination. Therefore, masturbation is uh, um, evil and abominable, and so is oral sex with your spouse, and so is sex with a condom, and so is homosexual sex right? What, what do they all have in common? They're not natural. Again, what if I showed you they were natural? 
Arguably they are. In fact, I, I'm pretty convinced that they are. Well, now what do you got to do? Do you as a Catholic especially have to change your opinion and say, well, no, no, now, now I should follow the, the nature? Well, no, you don't because you're going to go to the church authority and then you're going to go to scripture, I guess, right? But, well, then what's the point of Thomas Aquinas bringing up the whole business of um, sex is only for procreation in the natural, uh, natural world? You can't have it both ways. Don't give me your, uh, your, your moral reflections on, on animal behavior and then as, as an argument for a sexual ethic. And then when it turns out that that behavior isn't what we thought it was, don't then say, well, it doesn't matter. Just, just tell me what I'm supposed to think because the church told me, right? Just be honest with it. Don't, uh, don't waste my time with the other kind of line of argument. Well, in any case, the, the male penis, according to uh, many theorists, evolved in such a way to, uh, and, and I'm thinking about the kind of mushroom-shaped head at the end, um, it, is, it is arguably intended to extract the semen of somebody else that had had sex with the woman that that man is having sex with at the moment. In other words, there is a design element to the human male penis. Uh, I guess it's, yeah, anyway, the, the human penis, um, the design element is such that it anticipates promiscuity. So that would be, in some ways, an argument, a design argument for the naturalness of promiscuity in the same day. Now, I should reiterate that the reason this was so important to me is that it was a few years ago that I started to really realize how much pain and suffering was being endured by young people related to the way uh, purity culture was expressed within evangelicalism. It was probably subconscious at the time, but... Uh, for both Stacy and I, we realized that sexual ethics, as we had learned it, was so upsetting to our well-being. And I start the book out in many ways uh, with the, the kind of the, the story of masturbation, which I stand by. I think it's a great one to kind of say, hey, like we grew up in a world where nobody told us that masturbation was natural and normal. And we grew up thinking that it was this horrendous, absurd, uh, gross, disgusting sin. And so we internalized so much shame just from the start. Before you get to LGBT questions, before you get to premarital or extramarital sex questions or whatever, um, what you find is that the, the horror show of the inner life of a young person in the church um, to people outside, it's, it's unfathomable. There is this idea that essentially you, you know, depending on your tradition, you're in danger of hell for doing something that probably everybody does, Christian or not, um, devout or not, um, unless they have uh, some kind of, a, they're asexual, uh, have some kind of endocrine problem. I mean, there's like, basically everybody's doing it. Nobody mentions or admits that they're doing it. And uh, as it turns out, the people that were telling us not to have premarital sex, not to not to masturbate, were sleeping with uh, each other. They were having adulterous relationships within the church, and or were being sexually coercive, and in many cases being um, full blown rapists. So you know, in retrospect, the whole thing was stupid, 
right? Like that we had to be put through that nonsense. But the controlling of our sexuality isn't by accident. That's, that's the whole game. And I didn't realize that at the time, that, that them making me feel uncomfortable about masturbation was part of an overall system that made them say, well, we all sin from time to time. And if all sins are the same, a youth pastor being creepy is naughty. A woman wearing something too skimpy is naughty. Um, dating somebody your parents don't approve of is naughty. And then just being at home and masturbating um, as a 12-year-old, 13-year-old is also naughty and also very gross and upsetting. So when you're just living in that, you're just kind of constantly bombarded with the, with the sense of your own shame. And um, so I think that's something, I guess it's, it's, a, it's an addition, it's a footnote, not so much a retraction, because I do agree with what I, I do stand by what I say related to, you know, masturbation, what the church called onanism. And if anything, read that chapter, because that's where I get into, you know, kind of why Kellogg's cornflakes uh, was invented out of a, a certain church tradition that wanted to basically starve the libido. And sexy was about bringing the libido back, bringing it back and bringing life back and bringing flirtation back, bringing dancing back and bringing the joy of being in love and having a crush and all of that. And it was after my time when they didn't just say be chased. They said, don't date at all. This was the Josh Harris thing. Um, and interestingly, uh, Dan Van Voris and I got the chance on the uh, Virtual in the Wasteland podcast towards the end of the run of that show. We interviewed, um, and there was some hesitation about it, but we interviewed Josh Harris, who was retracting the whole thing. He said, no, oopsie daisy, sorry about that. Right? And so I'm not in that, in that boat. I'm not saying I'm sorry for this. I think the only thing I'm sorry for is being internal to the system itself and um, not recognizing earlier how it couldn't, I guess this is what I'm saying now. This is an important piece. It can't be done. That is what I was trying to do was kind of provide some kind of sane interpretation, some, some 21st century resetting, reframing of the evangelical sexual ethic. Ultimately, I don't think it can be done. Goes back to Augustine. Um, I don't think that Augustine, um, had a good sexual youth. His, it, his sexual life was traumatic, uh, you, as you can see in the uh, confessions. And he bequeaths that hang-up, or those sets of hang-ups, to the rest of the Western world, Catholic and Protestant. So that's a big mess. He just totally screws up sexuality. One dude, basically, having issues. And then you get Thomas Aquinas, who I've already mentioned, who tries to use natural law to argue for um, the idea that uh, our understanding of gender and sexuality is not a social construct, um, is not a, a matter of uh, community convention uh, or even personal decisions, but is based on some unalterable law that even God himself seems to not be fully a creator of, but somebody who's you know going to be a... Uh, maybe somebody, a, uh, an enforcer of, right, the rules, uh, and, you know, obey or don't go to heaven or be punished in purgatory or something like this. Here's the deal. Purity culture, a big drag. And I wanted to do the best that I could to help the college kids that I was dealing with have an alternative so that they didn't have to be in the same kind of sexual and emotional hell that I experienced, and many, many others that I knew experienced in worse ways. 
I wanted to deal with this idea of overcoming evolution through virtue ethics, which I think is pretty groovy. And I also was kind of interested in the ways in which, even at a metaphorical level, getting back to Eden or our inability to get back to Eden was part of the problem. I do say this in the book. That is, um, you can't really have a, a positive and perfect relationship with a spouse in that kind of Edenic, um, you know, naked but not ashamed way when you live in a capitalist hierarchical society. And that understanding why our sexual lives, our marriage lives are all screwed up is the path. I mean, understanding that is going to point you to the problems within fundamentalist Christianity itself and uh, hierarchical, statist, authoritarian society itself. Indeed, sexy, while I don't say it explicitly in the book because I didn't really realize the seeds it planted, uh, sexy and the research for sexy helped me to increasingly become interested in a different way of dealing with ethics that is riddled throughout the book. I talk throughout the book about the ethics and the virtue theory within uh, Kierkegaard, that's one thing, but especially the Tao Te Ching and the idea of surfing the Tao and uh, why Taoist ethics was so important. That began with the research I was doing there in that book. And ultimately, it became a dominant feature of my own thinking about ethics and spirituality later. Is the... Uh, the interpretation I have of Leonard Cohen and his song, Hallelujah. That was one of the main insights. And each of the chapters is um, a, a phrase from the song, Hallelujah, by Leonard Cohen. And again, I argue there that, um, that as many people thought that Hallelujah was a song about sex using spiritual imagery, I was arguing that in many ways it was a mystical song is a song about mysticism using sexual imagery. If anything, I would maybe take it back and say, no, it's about the idea that sex and mysticism are part of the same experience, uh, or that mysticism itself involves all aspects of encounter with existence and seeing the conne connections within uh, the natural world, within an acorn or, or the DNA molecule or whatever, you know, so I wouldn't separate it out so much, but certainly I think there is a deep spiritual and mystical side to that song that uses sex or the orgasm as a way to uh, deal with it. And one of my friends, uh, Dr. Schultz, Dave, you may have run into Dave in some of the older podcasts. Um, Dave had a professor that said, um, where is your ego when you're coming? And that sounds very graphic and, and explicit, but it's, um, it's the point. Where's your ego when you're having an orgasm? Um, where's your ego when you are in uh, the thrall of a bhakti yoga or of uh, some kind of mystical dance as a Sufi or even, heck, singing a praise song in a Pentecostal church? I mean, it's not my game. Uh, ever never really has been, but I can imagine that there are, there are those moments when that spiritual ecstasy is the is the mystical experience. And so there's value in understanding how Cohen's kind of putting those together. The Lutheran element uh, is probably the one piece that I would like to get rid of. Um, not in the sense that I disavow everything that I ever thought within Lutheranism. I certainly like the idea of unconditional love, the emphasis on vo vocation, 
vocation as a parent, as a spouse. Those are really powerful. Emphasis on grace. Emphasis on paradox um, in Lutheranism is strong. The idea that um, we are committed, but we're free. We are servant to no one, but we dedicate ourselves all to altogether to somebody. Um, those paradoxes are interesting and helpful, I think. Um, but ultimately, it was the emphasis on substitutionary atonement that I find um, detrimental. That is, yeah, you have to Google it if, if, if this isn't part of your vocabulary. But the idea that God is going to need somebody to suffer for him to be able to love is itself legalistic and contractual, it seems to me. So I, w- I would go with more of a Gerhard Ferdy version of this if it was going to be safe and healthy at all. That is, the minute you start saying, okay, um, you either have to be a perfect spouse or something has to be put in place for me to be allowed to love you, seems kind of problematic. What, what would it be like for the for the divine to love without the need for somebody to suffer, for there to be retribution. I think uh, that's helpful. I also think that there's a problem within this concept of substitutionary atonement, and this is what I would definitely take back, is something that I draw from, um, uh, from the, uh, the work of, of uh, Paul Zoll, for instance, this idea of... of um, non-transactional love. I agree that love should not be transactional. But what I'm worried about in terms of the Lutheran application of it that that I was guilty of committing, um, at least implicitly, was this idea that because Jesus died for my sins, I can be a, a jackass to my spouse. I can be a bad person. I could be creepy. I could be sexually inappropriate. I could be coercive. I could be a creeper. But the blood of Jesus covers that. Yeah, maybe, but let's like step back a few. God, the number of horrific stories that I encountered within the church world amongst people that were proclaiming grace is really what, what was the first step in pushing us out of that, that church world. That is, there are all these people who use the blood of Jesus to cover over the fact that they have been bad people and that they don't want to really reconcile with the, uh, the, this wickedness that they have committed against uh, young people, people that were in vulnerable spots, and they just don't want to deal with it. It just makes you want to pull your hair out. And the number of, uh, the percentage of clergy who know how to work that language and get away with their tomfoolery is, uh, is pretty significant. And it's, it's something that I just couldn't, I, I couldn't even try to reform it from within because it was so rife. In other words, maybe in, I don't think so, maybe in 10 years, I, I, Mallinson comes back to the faith as a, like a, a devout Roman Catholic or something, or evangelical or something. I just I don't think so. But at least for now, the amount of pain caused by this construct of creepy, 
men in leadership manipulating women and young people and then claiming the blood of Christ as a, as a get-out-of-jail-free get card in the temporal world in terms of their jobs, in terms of social, you know, canceling. No, the blood of Jesus doesn't get you uncanceled. And it's okay if you're canceled forever from certain things, right? If you're a doctor and you anesthetize me and then you draw a mustache on my face or do something far worse, (laughs) I can forgive you, but you're not supposed to have a doctor's license. You're not supposed to be practicing, right? I hear that Bill Gothard, that Bill Gothard is back at it after his sexual impropriety. Um, and he's, he's by no means alone. But, I mean, just that was in the news recently. So, no, the blood of Christ does not cover over your sins in such a way that you get to continue to perpetrate these problems. And at a very minor level, or very, like, kind of what you would think is maybe much less problematic, less criminal level, one thing I worry about in evangelical marriages is um, one partner, typically the dude, being an asshole and then using the blood of Christ to say, well, you've got to forgive me for not loving you the way you need to be loved, not having a reciprocal relationship. In other words, yes, I believe that agape love, unconditional love is really sublime and that non-transactional love is what a bodhisattva is about, what a saint is about, what Rumi was about, right? It's all cool. But in a marriage or in any kind of uh, romantic relationship, really even in a friendship, It shouldn't be transactional in that I do this for you and then I'm going to count how much you do for me. But it is about mutuality. It's not about charity. It's not about obligation. It's about mutuality. Let's think of it this way. Vampire bats hanging upside down under uh, a cave. They understand this. If a vampire bat doesn't get any blood that day and it comes back, it might not have enough caloric energy to get back out there and find more blood. So some bats that it's going to be there with sleeping at night will come back and they've eaten uh, more than enough blood for them to be able to get back out the next day. They can then mutually share the blood by regurgitating it with the starving bat. It's not transactional in the sense that the bat's not saying, okay, you owe me now this amount of blood. That's an uncomfortable, unholy kind of relationship. However, even the bats know that if this one bat refuses to share blood with the others who need it, then the next time that bat does not get any blood and it falls to the ground and dies. That's what we should be doing in our relationships. Not that we want people to die, but we want to uh, cut them out of our lives. If you have people in your life that are, you're married to, you're dating, they're your parents or whatever, if they do not have a reciprocal loving relationship, you don't have to have a transactional relationship with them, um, but you definitely uh, should set boundaries for your own protection so you're not having these like energy vampires in your life kind of drawing from you without returning any good love and uh, and energy and support um, on the other side of it. If I were to rate it again, something like this, it would definitely be less explicitly Christian. I wouldn't be trying to set it into those um, 
Christian contexts, not that I disavow the teachings of Jesus, but I am very uncomfortable with the appropriation of Jesus by the institution called Christianity. So, you know, that's just not where I'm at these days. So in that sense, I'm just retracting, I suppose, the not the sincerity of where I was, but the kind of the place I am today. If you listen to the show, you like me and Stacy, what we're up to doing, and you want to know, should you buy this book? The answer is, well, listen to this first. Right? Um, but what I really do love about the book is it's where I start to get into mysticism. And it's uh, the idea that mysticism helps open up healing in a relationship. And what is mysticism? It's I love you not because I have to, but because you are me that we are somehow interconnected, that, that uh, namaste, baby, I and you share this same um, spirit. We share the same life force. We are one in a, in a sense, in a very profound sense. And this is the new logic. Once I have this mystical realization that I am connected to the divine and I am connected to nature and I am connected to my horizontal relationships with other human beings, once I understand that profound mystery of interconnectedness, it is sexy. It is a turn on and it makes us better people. It doesn't make us better people because we have to be better people. It's because we want to be better people because we love our neighbor because they're us. And so it's not about, oh, do I, am I allowed to do this or not do this? But how do I want to treat a daughter of heaven, a son of heaven? How do I treat people that are like me, they're my people. And so this is eros as opposed to sloth. Eros being this idea in the Greek philosophy of love that points you upward. It, it elevates you, right? Platonic love is like this. It's like somebody that's beautiful in any way, physically, intellectually, emotionally. Their beauty elevates you, moves you towards something sublime, something beautiful, I wanted to focus on the heart, not premarital sex. Um, And I wanted to help people understand how virtue ethics in all aspects of life flowing from mysticism is so much better than legalism, so much more helpful and uh, so much more um, hopeful. Right. Again, if I were to do anything uh, to retract it, I would be more sex positive. Um, Specifically in after I had a conversation, um, I think we were in Nashville. There was a, uh, there was something where Micah Bornet and Emily Joy were, were doing something at a coffee shop along with uh, Brittany Spencer, who ended up hitting it pretty big after this. Um, I'll link to her stuff, but um, they were they were doing some work, and and afterwards we went out and uh, had some conversation with Emily, and and her wife and we were and Micah was there and we were just kind of talking about things and I said you know the one thing that I still don't quite fully understand and and I'm not fully bought in to yet is why you're kind of like you're you're saying that that pornography is okay and that sex work is okay I had not been exposed to that to me one of the things in the book was and this is this is probably the only major retraction is that I had uh, limited to no experience with sex work world. Um, didn't know a lot of folks that explicitly were in that world. I, I had interviewed people that had uh, been part of it in one way or the other. Uh, but the folks that I had, had known, either as uh, people that you know paid for sex or people that had been in some ways part of the sex work world or in pornography, 
you know, they were from a time that I think is is maybe changing. I'm hope, hoping that it's changing demographically generally. But, you know, I grew up where, you know, like I'm thinking about like porn in the 80s and 90s. And it just was uh, universally the stuff that me and my pals found in the bushes, <laughs> you know, or convinced somebody to go get it at the liquor store um, was almost universally exploitative. And even in retrospect, that stuff um, was dehumanizing. And so to me, what I was trying to say in the book is there's nothing wrong with the female form, uh, the human form, and any, in any uh, sexual, um, there's nothing wrong with sex. So I stand by that. But, but I just had assumed that everyone's experience within the world of sex work was uh, exploitative. To be honest, um, you know, I think sometimes, I'll still kind of say I think I'll say this, that um, that's a part of it. And in our attempt to be sex positive and to be, um, you know, champions of the rights of sex workers, I mean, I'm, I've always been uh, a champion of decriminalizing sex work and um, against the Comstock Act and, and all this, I believe in f- freedom of expression. But, um, you know, as we saw with the, the stuff that was more recent than my book uh, about the problems of Pornhub and, and others, um, other uh, online uh, companies, being, <sighs> being outlets for exploitation that's a fact. And so we cannot allow that to, to, you know, kind of cloud the whole thing. But, you know, I think this is part of the problem of being in the church world. <clears throat> we don't know what we don't know. And therefore we can't really get into a space where we can, we can kind of judge and, uh, I mean, judge in the sense, not of judging people, but kind of discern what's healthy and unhealthy. And so, um, you know, kind of asked Emily about this and, you know, there is a lot of sex negativity to the whole thing, but there's also this problem that um, there's this kind of moral indignation that allows misogynists and uh, kind of otherwise uptight people to kind of have this kind of high ground where they're against sex trafficking, they're against, you know, whatever it is. Um, in the case of anti-trans folks in America now, they're like against groomers. Well, of course, yeah, we don't like sex trafficking. And, and we don't like groomers. Uh, we don't like sex trafficking. We don't like groomers. But the real, uh, the real problem here is that uh, sometimes that is used as a cover for other kind of agendas, you know. So, or, or just, I don't know, maybe it's a smoke screen. Uh, the fact is there is um, ethical feminist porn. Not sure if it's something that is something that you psychologically want or not don't want in your personal life. Um, and I'm not enough of a, of an expert to know, you know, where to point people, um, you know, but there are filmmakers like, uh, Erica Lust, for instance, that, uh, primarily work with people who are not only like willing volunteers, but they kind of are just real people, real couples, uh, or, you know, configurations that come up with ideas and they are going to go out there and, um, have fun and then allow people to have a kind of, uh, world in which they can have um, kind of the shared fun of that. It wasn't something that I made a big deal about, but I definitely, uh, I, I think, need to also to defend myself by saying that the, the importance of the whole thing was the big project being about saying, okay, if there's something valuable to this teaching, is there any way uh, that there is some kind of virtue uh, 
or value embedded within the teaching that would allow me to um, to kind of translate that to a new day and what could be you know maintained and I think certainly the the dehumanization of people should be eschewed by by Christians and and, and all good people um, and the um, the commodification of the human body in a capitalist system is gross right not just selling um, films okay that that's not friends we don't have time for this but like capitalism is not you having a small business or you making money with your creative work capitalism is a system uh, is a, a system related to who's controlling this thing and so for a lot of folks the people that are uh, up until recently the people that are making pornography the people that are working as escorts the people that are uh, dancing they are um, they are like having to be a very uh, kind of case in point for exploitation as it comes to um, the the class system in America in the way that capital is is used and so if you don't control the means of production as a sex worker if you are not in, involved in your own empowerment, if you're not the person who's calling the shots, if you don't have any direct control over the choices you're making, then that's, uh, that's an immorality, uh, it's an injustice. It's not because sex is gross or dirty, it's because that is exploitation that we don't want either in the sex industry, um, we don't want it there, nor do we want it in any other place of uh, business. We don't want it for factory workers, we don't want it for car washers, uh, or mid-level managers. Now, I, you know, as I was reading over it, I'm not sure at any point if I would have said promiscuity is implicitly uh, promiscuous, or no, uh, promiscuity is, is um, implicitly problematic. I didn't think it at the time, and my language may have reflected that. And that's just, you know, kind of how it is when you come out of uh, that world if you deconstruct your evangelicalism or something like this. Um, but in any case, the, the over negativity about some of these things is something that those of us who have come out of fundamentalist backgrounds don't even realize it, that it's in our language. You know, like there are certain conversations I've had with folks where they'll realize, oh, well, I'm gay, but I still have internalized homophobia because I grew up in the church. I don't realize it. It's not explicit. I have to talk it out to be able to understand it. You know, that was just something I wouldn't have seen back when I was writing this book. I stand by the idea that you should find the one um, by choosing the one as opposed to looking for this idea of fate or, or something or predestination. Yeah, I stand by that, but I think the... The, the, the panic about finding one, even if you want to have one, the panic about finding the one is, uh, is prob problematic. Um, just because it privileges one type of arrangement over others. And I think it's important for us all to, to recognize the importance of all consensual equal relationships being legitimate. And if they're healthy for you, they're healthy. Um, it's totally possible that you think something's healthy and it's not healthy. I'll hold that out. But generally speaking, there are a lot of folks who are in very happy relationships that fundamentalist Christians would say are uh, completely abominable. And, um, and yeah, I understand that from a perspective of biblical inerrancy, perhaps. But in 
anecdotal experiences and just social scientific research just doesn't hold up. Speaking of social scientific evidence, one thing I would take back isn't really directly related to what I say, but I uh, spent a little bit of time quoting from a book by Aziz Ansari um, uh, on modern, modern romance. Um, it's still a fascinating book, especially for those of us who did not grow up in the age of Tinder and, uh, and how that changed things. You know, the idea that people a long time ago only had a few uh, partners to choose from and now you've got all these partners and so it makes you less happy. Very interesting social scientific work. Aziz Ansari, uh, you know, subsequently got me too'd, so oopsie-daisy. So oopsie-daisy, but uh, the reason I think it's still interesting is because I get the sense that one of the primary authors of it was um, somebody that I ran into at a Mockingbird conference, Eric Kleinenberg. Eric Kleinenberg was the social scientist, a Jewish guy, by the way, um, who was um, kind of joking that he was giving a conference at an Episcopal church and there was a big cross behind him. Um, also writing for a dude, uh, Aziz Ansari, who's not an evangelical, speaking at this, you know, this conference. Aziz Ansari wasn't there. My point is, I think Aziz saw the work of Eric uh, Kleinenberg and then said, hey, I can kind of spin this, I can kind of work this in a catchy way that maybe an academic isn't able to pull off. But uh, so it's an interesting book, and I, I, I'm hopeful that Eric Kleinenberg is a is an upstanding dude. So that said, I probably wouldn't have put uh, Aziz Ansari as one of the recommended readings at the back of the book. So I guess that's it. I read through it again. It was hard. It's hard to read who I was then. I. I'm happy that I was on a good trajectory for myself. Basically, I had been in great despair. Uh, Stacy and I were in a relationship situation that was incredibly painful. And we came to realize that it was painful because it was based on legalism rather than virtue theory. Um, it was based in a way of viewing religion in authoritarian ways, even if we didn't want that even if that wasn't my disposition. But it was, it was just um, totally upended by discovering mysticism, by discovering the Tao Te Ching, and, um, and just becoming like a, a, a hippie. That was like my formative days. You know, I'm like, I'm beaming. If you read it, I'm very optimistic. Um, it's kind of sad and cute because I've lived so much and suffered so much since then, so much uh, pain uh, in my own family, with personal tragedy with our family, but also just with the kind of ending of relationships within the fundamentalist world that just weren't going to be able to continue so long as people were going to stay in that world, whether or not I should have. I mean, they were going to have a problem with me, and I'm not going to see eye to eye with, with them and the way they're thinking. But, um, you know, ultimately what that says to me or what that does for me is to say that um, I'm not really interested in apologizing. I'm certainly apologizing for people if I've hurt their feelings, but I am interested in recognizing that there are certain points at which the trajectory that you're on might be a good trajectory, but that the old tool 
the old artifact of that life may now have to be relegated, which I think the book is, which I think sexy is, to be relegated to a piece of uh, personal historical significance that is, is an important piece of my life. If you care about where my family was at that time and some of the stories in there I think are fun and interesting, then, uh, then maybe you want to check it out. I wrote it to my late son um, to kind of give him the best, um, the best that I could at that time in his life as he was getting ready to graduate high school. And, you know, subsequently we've learned a lot of ways in which our internalized uh, sex negativity affected uh, Sydney and him. And we've reconciled uh, over, over that. Uh, we did, hopefully, with Augie before he died, and we, we continue to do that with Sydney now. But, um, but I will just remark one thing. He, uh, Augie does have a piece in there. Uh, he's a guest contribution. And the, the two things that he said are really interesting. And the first is that uh, when I suggested that maybe he didn't want to lock into early with Sydney, which is kind of interesting, right? I'm saying, like, Maybe marriage and monogamy isn't the only way to go. But for Augie, he's like, there was no other way for him than that. That was the way for him. It wasn't a question of whether God needed him to do it or the state needed him to do it. There was just no way he was going to ever abandon his lady. And that was beautiful. And then me asking, you know, hey, um, you know, don't you realize? And I, and I didn't say it because I, I had any problem with Sydney. I thought Sydney was great. And I'm the kind of person, like I did, I locked in with Stacy really early. But I just said, hey, you know... Um, some people would say at least they're more efficient, you know, in the sea out there. So like, you know, do you understand the breadth of your possible options? And he said, that's against everything that we've thought as a family that you've taught philosophically and ethically and so forth. And he meant it, but he meant it not in a way that was at all interested in just obeying what I had to say. And it was therefore, um, I think very helpful for him to confirm the heart of what sexy was about, the heart being about this um, commitment to not leaving people in the dust when they're not immediately producing something for us, but just their intrinsic value and the mysticism of the beautiful love that people have together. The other thing I would say, so that's, the, that's the beautiful, beautiful thing that Augie contributed, but the other thing that he says that I thought was really interesting, and my favorite insight that he had about the church, probably of all time, was the piece where he says, look, I hear a lot of these theologians and pastors talking about God the way a 13-year-old in the locker room talks about sexual intercourse. They've got a lot of theories about it, but it doesn't seem to me, if I listen to the way they're talking, that they've ever really experienced the real thing. And that was damning. That probably like put a little seed in my heart that continued you know, to, to um, help me unravel or deconstruct. And that is, um, yeah, a lot of these people are talking about an encounter with the holy and the divine, and it seems like they are spiritual virgins. Um, just like, you know, kids talking about their sexual conquests in middle school might be spiritual, uh, rather sexual virgins, but they're pretending like they're very, you know, um, uh, experienced. Um, that is not to end with a criticism of clergy or, you know, anybody. But it is to say, if you are still listening to us at Protect Your Noggin and you are still in the church and you're a church leader and you're clergy, 
we're so glad you're still with us. Just like, even if you disagree with us, just hang with us and what you'll at least learn what not to do, I guess, if you don't agree with us. But, but check it out. If you haven't tasted and seen that the Lord is good, why are you talking about the Lord? Why are you working for the Lord? If you haven't tasted and seen the deep beauty of the mystery of oneness with the holy and with the earth and with other human beings, um, you're missing something. And I'm not saying that to make you feel bad. I'm saying it to entice you to look closer at goodness, truth, and beauty in the world. To not give up on the spiritual and even the theological quest, but to not be content with something that doesn't bring joy and freedom and happiness. If your spirituality cannot offer freedom and happiness, and if it cannot produce in you a transformation of heart and thereby a transformation of your relationship with others, if you find yourself spending a lot of time worried that you are too caught up in lust uh, for other people in your congregation or in your workplace and uh, you're worried about God being mad at you, um, I just feel like you're on this weird treadmill that I would invite you to get off, which is to both become a better person in terms of your sexual ethics and your sexual life, but not because you're worried about hope of, pun uh, hope of reward or fear of punishment, but because you are spreading love from a position of deep peace upon peace. That's what we want for you on behalf of Stacy and the rest of our crew. Peace upon peace to you. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP. And rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter low too much.